0: Hello and welcome to the Delphian Podcast.
1: Delphian is an artist-led nomadic gallery focusing on emerging and early career
0: artists. Each episode will feature a different art world practitioner, from artists and gallerists to collectors and curators.
1: If you liked today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe.
0: Hello and welcome to the next edition of the Delphian Podcast. So we're with David Schillinglaw today in Margate at his studio. Um, We've known David for a long time now, and he's an artist and curator based in Margate, Um, and his thoughtful and cheerful paintings can be found on gallery walls and public walls worldwide.
2: Hello. Hello. Hi. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming to Margate. No worries. Thanks for
1: inviting us to Margate. Yeah.
2: Big up. Delphian. And what does that mean again?
1: We're interviewing you, mate. Sorry, <laughs> we're interviewing you. Hey, I'll ask the questions here. Listen, listen,
2: I want to know who I'm talking to. What does Delphian mean? you told me. obscurely prophetic. You're prophetic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, obscurely prophetic. Mm. What does Dirty Paradise mean and why did you start Dirty Paradise? <sighs> Dive straight and deep in there, eh? um, <laughs> All right, Dirty Paradise is a project that I started four years ago. And there's a little story. I will tell you the story of Dirty Paradise, or rather where the words Dirty Paradise come from. Because actually, if you Google it, there's a few other things. I think there's a movie called Dirty Paradise. I didn't know that at the time. Have you since watched it? No, I haven't. It's a documentary, I think. I'm not sure I should really watch it. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so I was in Mexico. And I kept referring to the beach as dirty paradise because it was like a postcard picture paradise. You know, coconut trees, Mm. giant iguanas lounging around in in the sun. And it was beautiful, but there was also loads of shit on the beach, like bottles with Chinese writing on them and syringes and toothbrushes and flip flops. And it was just like this constant reminder of what idiots humans are. (laughs) And I kept saying to Lily, oh, another day in Dirty Paradise. And it started to, like, ferment in my mind. It was like, oh, this would be a good title for a show or even a brand, you know? Like, I can imagine doing T-shirts with different artists and say Dirty Paradise. It just felt like it already existed, which it did, but I didn't realise that. Right. I've done also a number of collective projects. I used to run a gallery in this warehouse that I lived in, and I've always had that... Uh, maybe over generous energy to like big up other people work with other people and actually I think the focus of it is about community I always got a lot of energy off other people and, and when I was in university did like group shows um, I was very inspired <coughs> long before Day Paradise but by the alleged gallery, do you know that? It was yeah, Aaron yeah. um, Rose Aaron Rose, yeah. so he curated And kind of organised Beautiful Losers, which is a book. Yeah, absolutely. And this gallery was basically an old butchers or something like that, where he just called it a gallery, started putting on shows, and it really struck a chord with me when I was at university, definitely, because it kind of contradicted a lot of what my university were telling me art needed to be. Which was like a kind of academic, very institutional and respectful uh, process, which are, it can be, and it maybe should be, but it also inspired me like, oh no, these are all just friends who are into skateboarding, that was the thing, they were into skateboarding, punk rock, and doing stuff, and actually some of those artists because of that gallery have now become some of the, maybe some of the most important painters and filmmakers and photographers of our generation. That was definitely part of the catalyst for me making my own gallery, which, was also a project, it was called Nowhere North and um, so maybe that was the initial seed for Dirty Paradise and mm-hmm. um, there were also a few group shows which I curated which at Nancy Victor Gallery which we were talking about earlier. So before Dirty Paradise there was already a few tried mm-hmm. and failed um, attempts at doing something collectively. It wasn't about me necessarily it wasn't about money it was about like just doing something and like making something happen okay so go back to mexico when i came back from that trip i had this turn 30 paradise and i thought that would be a good zine because i love a zine right you do love a zine i love a zine what's not to like (laughs) Like, because when i was at uni i used to make loads of zines i'd sew them on a sewing machine and i was i was making it as part of my practice it was about the the process and the sketchbooks were really an integral part of my practice at university more than finished paintings um, so when I came back from Mexico I was like you know what oh there was another bit of that story which is quite important I did a job which I didn't want to do because it was for some rich couple who were like oh we want some street art on our wall you know that sort and I was like oh this isn't right and they're like we'll give you £2,000 and I was like I was in this dilemma to like, do this kind of interior street art mural that I didn't really want to do. And I had this little voice in my head that said, take this job, right? But you put all of that money into Dirty Paradise. So it's like I was working for free yeah. or I was working for Dirty Paradise. And then I had like two and a half thousand pounds that I wasn't gonna spend on my rent and new shoes. Instead, I was like, I'm gonna print two zines I'm going to build a website, and I'm going to put on a show. That was where Dirty Paradise started, really. So I had the name, suddenly I had two and a half grand to back it, and I did the show at Malarkey Studio. Okay. Do you remember? remember? Yeah. Maybe that was we, the last time we saw other. Yeah, we came yeah, to, yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah. Like so Malarkey now lives in Barcelona, but at the time he had this incredible old house, really, yeah. or a shop. It was an old shop that yeah. had actually been used as an art studio for years. And he used it as his studio, which was perfect, because he was doing of ceramics, so it was like, it was perfect for him. And he and I had talked about doing stuff like that for ages, and it was a one-night event, which what I loved about it was that nothing was for sale, mm. everyone got a free zine, everyone got a drink, and it was almost like a speakeasy. You had to know where it was. It was a great location, yeah.
0: There was like a a speakeasy, a metal door you had to knock on to come in. Secret
2: knock. Yeah, it was great. But also I said, look, I'm not gonna advertise the address, but if you wanna find out, anyone can come. And it was in like, it's in wherever, in East London. So that was the initial thing and I thought, wow, this is, uh, there's potential to this because it's not me, there's no expectation of money or fame those two things weren't the inspiration. It was about joining the dots between people like Clone Yourself was there. He projected a film. Remy Ruff turned up. He wasn't in the first show, but he's in this one. Malarkey was there. Christina Lina was there. Lily Mix was there. You were there. There was a, Suddenly there was this like energy of, oh there's 35 people turning up in January in a cold derelict house. And I felt I do feel that there's something about that um, that's lacking in the art world where everything's got a really nice invitation, everything's for sale, it's in a very white, clean room. And this was almost the opposite of that. It was like, it was more about people making the effort to engage with it and ask questions, and I kind of feel like that's what art and gallery should be. It's like a a safe and exciting place to ask questions, like what connects all these artists? Why is Hector, who's a Swedish writer, why is he next to this guy from Tel Aviv? And um, at that point, it was still, and may I add, it is still evolving in my head what it actually is. The definition almost shifts and changes depending on who's looking at it, you know? Um, and even what you mentioned at the beginning, I'm a curator, I find that term quite, it's a loose term because I take that term quite seriously, so seriously, in fact, I don't really refer to myself as a curator because when I was studying art, curation was really a very important ingredient in the process of making a show. So for, for one of the reasons I question that term is because I'm in the show and I'm not always sure or rather, I think maybe the curator shouldn't be in the show in the same way that a curator shouldn't collect art there's certain things you're like, whoa but in the in I, I don't know I, like I said the definition changes a lot I wouldn't say I'm a curator I'd say I'm an organizer and a catalyst and there's another person who helps me and I'd say that she was actually more of a, she's got a lot more of a critical eye and she, her, her name's Joanna Dudderidge. She's a photographer and a, she's a, actually a jack of many trades. She's, she's a great graphic designer and, and so she's been helping me pretty much since the show Malarkey stopped actually. It was kind of, she came to that and was like, this is really interesting what you're doing. I'd like to help if we do another show. Can I help? And um, relieve you of some of the organization and help you with stuff that maybe I think it could be developed. And so the second show was at Jealous and that was a little bit more like the classic art exhibition, you know, white space. Jealous Gallery, big up, they're great. They did a screen print for us with Sam Bassett. Nice. So again, it developed, it grew extra limbs. And I kind of feel like Dirty Paradise is a bit like Frankenstein's monster. And every time it has a show, like it, we stitch on a new limb to it, or it twitches. It's, it, and and uh, I feel like it's a, it's going to keep developing. It could end up being some sort of festival. It could. I'd like to think of it as a publisher. We've now printed three zines. Two of them are um, groups of artists, and the, the third one is a solo artist. And. That excites me as as well as publishing, whether it's internet and creating interviews like you guys are doing. I did actually start a podcast with it Mm. and I recorded 10 podcasts. Wow. I didn't publish any because I felt like I wasn't confident that maybe I had a strong enough voice or that maybe the world doesn't need another white man making a podcast. <laughs> I, I love podcasts, but all of three white men in the room now hey. making a podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, but you know what I mean? Like I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of them. And I'm so happy that you're asking me to do your podcast after 10 podcasts and editing it the process of editing audio is so annoying yeah. and involved that yeah. i was like this is a job that i'm not getting this is another job i'm not getting paid for so i just uh, i have a certain thing right when i get involved with a project if things get too heavy or stressful there's a little voice in my head that goes why don't you just not do it <laughs> right and that's a it's quite a good voice to have because sometimes i've done it a number of times where i'm like why don't i just not do this and as a possibility <laughs> you're suddenly like oh my god i can actually just not do this and no one will care yeah. i had not told anyone about it well yeah
0: especially as you've never announced it, and then you only people would know of the 10 people that you used to the next
2: to. day was like the best day of my life because i was suddenly like oh my god i just quit a job i wasn't getting paid for and i'm i'm okay with it so so basically it could be a podcast and if it ever does i've got a backlog like, of 10 interviews some of them are great actually and actually what was specific about the podcast was that each one was in a different place. I really put the emphasis on it being a psychogeographic um, podcast. So I would interview, for example, Laser314, who's a great, great artist and a friend of mine in Amsterdam. I interviewed him walking through the streets of Amsterdam doing graffiti oh, with nice. him. With Lily, Lily Mix, my partner, but also an amazing artist. I interviewed her in Paris, in a park, under a tree. And it was amazing because as we walked into the park, I was recording it, and there was some like old lady on a on an accordion playing the Amelie oh. soundtrack, and it was just, like <laughs> it had a completely different energy to sitting in a, a closed up room. I mean, we're in my studio, so it's it's fitting. But I really wanted to capture some of the the spirit of the place, and um, so anyway. I just rambled a lot, then you know, that's Dirty Paradise. Cool. Oh, but you have got a show. Yeah, you've got one coming up. So that is relevant to right yeah. now, and you're both in it. Yeah, we are. So yeah, the, the show, just to maybe conclude what Date Paradise is, after a year since the Jealous show, I thought, this Frankenstein's monster needs to be brought back to life or it will die. Um, meanwhile, I've started using Instagram a lot. I put something up every day which has become a little ritual of mine, but it's also a way of me saying, look at this picture of ex artists in their studio, and some of those artists are relevant to Dirty Paradise, and some of them are like artists who died a hundred years ago. So it's, it's a real mix of, even some of it's not even art. It's like, look at this guy skateboarding in a museum, or, or it, it's just a little, using the internet to sort of, I don't know, keep the energy going and it sort of works because sometimes people are following and liking Dirty Paradise who are like heroes of mine yeah. and I'm like wow that's amazing that I'm doing something that is a bit of a I mean I'm, I'm in two minds about how valuable the internet is because it's so disposable mm. and yet it's immediate so I think it works if you do something <coughs> every day with it like a little magazine um, but I take it all with a pinch of salt the internet's just just boring isn't it I think it, it, but it totally uh, sort of backs up or leads to things that happen in real life, which is this show. So when I lived, in, I've lived in Margate now for nearly two years, and after that decision to do something else with Dirty Paradise, I found this little space, Joseph Wales, which is a lovely studios and a little gallery space. It used to be used for making ships and boats like hundreds of years ago, so it's got this amazing history. And I decided to put on a show. That show is, is, (laughs) Uh, it's it's quite a lot of work. There's 43 artists in it, which is a lot. Because if you imagine the last two shows, the one at Malarky's, the one at Jealous, I've got a lot of that work still. And I didn't want to just include the same artists. I wanted to, for example, invite you guys to be in it. So it was like, it's like snowballed. As it's, as time's gone on, more people have sent me stuff. And it's such a mix. It's a mix of high and low, inside and outside. There's people in the show who've never been in a show. There's people in the show who are really famous comic book artists who no one knows about, unless you're into comic books. There's other people who I'd say are famous in the mainstream. Stanley Donwood. Stanley Donwood, who I've never met, but is like a massive hero of mine. And I'm I'm honored that he's part of it. and it's, so it's a mix of also again friends but also some people I don't know and I don't really necessarily want to know people I, I want to join the dots and one of the ways I've been describing it is that it's a constellation so each artist is a point and every time there's a show that constellation changes one of the things I'm most excited about in it is um, a collection of flags from Ghana which is I just stumbled upon and, and I thought these are Fascinating because they're made by old men in Ghana, and they have this amazing outside art, folk art kind of feel to them. I contacted the collector of them, and she's lending me five of the flags. And amazing. So for me, that is almost the cherry on the cake, because it's folk art, or it's outsider art, and it's very current. This is a culture that still exists, but it's dying, because the young generation in Ghana aren't continuing this. And it's uh, the more I've researched that, um, collection of flags, like they're really amazing, and they're some of them are really valuable. And people like Paul Smith collects them. And so there's some stuff in the show that excites me that is is as far away from street art or fine art as you can go. And um, so there you go. That's it in a, in a nutshell. Dirty Paradise it opens next week. It's on for five days in Margate, which is. It also feels sorry just to conclude. It feels also like I'm contributing towards this idea of a community and one of the emphasis on Dote Paradise is that it's about the local and global community. So including artists from Tel Aviv alongside artists from Margate, alongside old men from Ghana and you know I wouldn't even be adverse to including children's art in it. It's one of those things that I don't want it to be exclusive. I want it to be inclusive. I think the function of it should be to ask questions and to potentially enable people to leave thinking that they want to and can do something. Because ultimately, if you're making art, if you're creating something, you're not consuming things. That's kind of the emphasis on it, is that like, let's encourage people to create. And let me platform lots of different versions of creativity. From a Remy Ruff, which is a geometric abstract canvas, very finely executed framed compared to an old man in Ghana who doesn't even know about the show and I think that that's really interesting, because you could go the other route with it and be like, this is all street art, and these are all for sale and I'm like, no, that's not what it's about the end
0: <laughs> full stop okay so, so away, from, away away from dirty paragraphs yeah let's get uh, away from that your own work like it seems right. like it your work's sort of a stream of consciousness almost um, a stream happen- of consciousness a, yeah <laughs> how much do you how much do you plan pieces before you start or is, or is it like an ongoing process
2: of uh, yeah stream of consciousness it's strange how that works actually because often while I'll spend three months or so building a body of work and that will change from the last one subtly there'll be nuances that that, that suddenly make it a new body of work whether it's a certain color palette certain materials and what's interesting to me and it's something I can't quite quantify or predict but it's almost as soon as I've done it my brain kicks in a new body of work. It's like I start making the work in my head before I do it, a bit like a musician humming a melody. I come up with ideas before, and then I ser- I, I, I prepare for that with either materials. Like I'll stretch a load of canvases, or I'll get a certain colours. So, for example, I, I was in the studio last night. And we can see these pieces, which. Are mainly blue and it's funny because I just I just started sort of limiting myself to using just that color palette last night it and then I play with those limitations and things kind of developed it to answer your question I don't plan it specifically but I limit myself and then things grow ideas grow and kind of ideas cross-pollinate, I like to think of the way I work in my studio as cross-pollinating. Um, what's funny about that analogy, I used to think about that at university, that like when bees pollinate flowers, right, bees don't know that they're pollinating yeah. flowers. And when the flowers make themselves pretty colours, and some very specific colours for certain insects, they don't know they're making honey. And I like that symbiosis. And I often think about that in terms of my own studio practice that I'll be making multiple pieces even this is one night and there's already like four, five pieces on the wall I very rarely sit and make one piece and finish it because I rely and trust the the spontaneous sort of proliferation of oh this colour will bleed into this piece this mark and I'll even end up cutting pieces up and sticking them onto other pieces So it's it's quite a an organic process but I had to start with a vague plan of like colour palette, materials and then I sort of just yeah like play I really believe in the sort of importance of play meaning allowing things to go wrong and like I really try and stay away from design I'm not a designer I did study design Sometimes I have to design because people want to see a sketch for a mural, or people go, Oh, we want you to do this menu for our restaurant. When I'm in the studio making fine art, I try and stay away from knowing what anything's going to look like. I want to be surprised, I want there to be an aha moment. And I believe that art is about discovery. When you're making something, it's about um, a sort of stumbling upon discover- discoveries and that's important to me in the practice, is sort of discovering things and not planning it too much. It's a hard, hard thing to answer that actually, like is there a plan? Is that, was that your question? Did I answer yeah. your question?
1: Yeah. Well another question we had written down was about the role play takes in your work. Yeah, kind of covered that already. the importance uh, of play—it's always been there
2: since I was a child. If, if it's there with all children, but actually, like show <laughs> I did at Stolen Space years ago, is called um, "My Idea of Fun." That was um, almost
1: exactly, however many years ago, because it popped up in my Facebook memories thing. It was was like, it?
2: It was this week, yeah. however many years ago good that Facebook does that, isn't it? Otherwise we'd forget. <laughs> also, sometimes it reminds me of things I don't want to remember. I'm yeah. like, oh, don't show me that picture today. <laughs> um, but yeah, play is, I think, at the sort of root of almost why I make art. Because art for me is a kind of escape. It's a, it's a way, and it is a job, obviously. If you're going to be a full-time artist, you've got to try and make money. But there's another side to it. Like last night, I got here at 9pm. Like, I get here almost at the end of the day, and then there's like a whole new part of my day. And it is a kind of therapy for me. I need it. I, I, I release something when I make work in a way that watching TV doesn't, going out and socialising doesn't. It's, maybe it's important that I'm by myself. I don't talk. I listen to podcasts or audiobooks. I listen to music. Sometimes I'm in silence. And I'm just making things, and there is something, even when it goes wrong, there's something really satisfying about it. Of like, yeah, that idea of failing better, you know? That Samuel Beckett quote, like yeah. a try to fail, no matter, try again, fail again, fail, better. Mm. I feel like when I make paintings, I am learning stuff. Not in a way that you learn at university or school, but you're learning by like when you're a kid and you fall over, that kind of learning. You're learning because painting is very, it's a strange thing to do. You can't edit and undo it. There's only one thing. It's, It's maybe that's why I'm so in love with it, is that there is this, you're capturing time. I'm fascinated with it as well because there's very few other things that do that. If you're cooking, you get to eat it at the end and it's gone. If you make music, yeah, you can have a recording of it, but ultimately you see a live thing or you have a recorded version of it. With painting and drawing, you're capturing time in, an, in a movement and in an event, which then is there and it includes all the marks that even like things that you try and rub out or try and cover up are still there. And then the weird thing is at the end, you try and sell it or not. But there's a, there's a beauty in that, I think, that there's an event that happens, like a mark that's made, which then stays there. And it's like a song. I think of paintings as like, I'm making a song or a piece of music that just keeps singing. You know, it just keeps, the, the noise just keeps resonating. Or rather it's like a, it's like you're telling a story, but there's no full stop. If it was music, would you liken it to kind of free jazz where there's no
1: like linear kind of. Yeah, I guess I would, but. And it's very experimental and
2: it's lots of stuff going on all at once. Yeah, not specifically jazz, though. I love jazz, um, but even funk or. I know what you mean, there's an improvisation to that, that yeah, but then there's also other things in my work where I have certain motifs or characters or. Devices, visual devices that I can fall back on, like, oh, what goes here? Well, what could fit there? And then I've got this repertoire, so it's not always completely improvised. There's a kind of encyclopedia in my mind of things that I can fall back on, and also some of that is for other people to access the work. Some people want to see a certain thing of mine. I just did a show in Valencia, and the gallery was like, we really want the little heads that you do, and I was like, oh, I was going to make. Work without little heads in because I'm kind of a bit over painting little heads with brains in. Um, there's another there's a sort thing I think about when I'm making work right that there's three conversations that I'm having when I make something, and it's something I've always thought since I was studying. I, I remember thinking about these almost like three different dialogues. So the first dialogue is with myself. talking to myself and honestly processing things I sometimes I'll paint something in my work a little house and I'm like oh yeah I'm buying a house maybe that is it's autobiographical I'm 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 getting stuff out like a sketchbook but on a painting then the second dialogue is I'm talking to art history I'm accepting or rejecting ideas from the fauves or from Philip Guston or from this specific painting like I might do a little light bulb that looks like the light bulb from Guernica it's like I'm talking to Picasso and then the third dialogue is with an audience which is an interesting dialogue to have because I might never meet that person or they might rely on a paragraph they've read in a press release and then they're confronted with the canvas that I did 10 years ago but in a way I'm conscious of that like three different conversations and I feel like each painting has all three or should have all three. Um, That's something I think about when I make work. I want people to get it and I don't mean understand it but I want to get them on the dance floor talking about music. It's like there's no point making something that no one wants to access. I feel like there should be like points of access. Once you get someone on the dance floor then you can play with some free jazz, <laughs> <laughs> or drum and bass. So um, going back to something you said a little, a little
1: while ago, um, you've kind of moved away from uh, figuration or um, these heads, or these, and also kind of you used to use a lot more words than you do now. Mm. Why, why, is, why have you decided to kind of take that, take that new direction?
2: Nick Russell's the bag in the background. Um, okay, so yeah, I go through phases and it's not a definite decision. It's not like, right, I'll never do that again. It's just a, 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 a res- I resist doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And sometimes when I get to a point, I'm like, right, I'm definitely not going to do that anymore. And then within three months, I'm like, oh, maybe I should do that again. <laughs> it just comes and goes, and there's, there's different phases. Sometimes it, it's a physical thing. Sometimes I'll paint a giant thing on a wall, and, it's a, and, and then I'm like, right, definitely don't want to paint anything big. I want to do tiny little ink drawings. Mm. Sometimes it's the content. Like, okay, I've done loads of big heads in a mural because that's what the client wanted. Now I'm just going to make something. I think at the, I really love abstract art. And I think it's something I am, am attempting to do, but I think it's really difficult to do. Which is funny, because I think yeah. a lot of people try and do it, and I think there's so much room to do it badly. Yeah. Because there's, I've got a funny thing with abstract painting, where if someone tries to make an abstract painting that looks anything like another abstract painter's work, it immediately looks like a painting. And it's not really abstract. It's not, because you're making an image of an, of an abstract painting. And I think an abstract picture, not necessarily a painting, but a picture that is abstract, is basically a picture that's never existed before. You're drawing something that doesn't exist. You're conjuring something. You're alluding to something. You're suggesting something. But as soon as it starts to look like Robert Motherwell or de Kooning, you're like, no, now it looks like de Kooning. So don't get me wrong. I love Dakini. But I don't want to... I don't. Don't you? Oh, there we go, I agree to disagree <laughs> on that. Recently I have attempted to make purely abstract work. And when I say purely, I mean there is no reference there. there's no little tree, there's no little house, there's no words. That's really difficult. And it's something I think about all the time it's something I'm, i feel like i'm dipping my toes in but I'm, i might get there when i'm 60 you know But
0: well, especially as your work before has had a lot of that in so it must be like you were saying before about the encyclopedia that you can fall back on mm. it's moving away from that now like so there's it's it's less. There's, there's less to mm. fall back on you're having to
2: make yeah. new all the time or also to referencing so for example the head shape that mm. i've been i've developed over years because that head I didn't just do the same sort of head with these googly eyes the same 10 years ago as I do now It's developed but now I'm at a point where maybe I can reference those shapes or certain symbols and play with the positive and negative shapes and play with my own almost remixing or deconstructing my own stuff to create a new sort of set of visual sort of I don't know tools yeah um, also I think what's interesting about the, the thing about words is that words are an abstraction which has always fascinated me that like you know you, 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 there's a point in your life when you look at words and they are just jumbled up lines and shapes when you're a child you can't read a bit like when you look at Chinese you're like what does that mean mm-hmm. although there is a Chinese word I think for house that looks like a little house so yeah. some words look like the thing that they're trying to to describe but um, that fascinates me as well the, the sort of abstraction of numerology and, and words that you can write a word on a, on a painting or a drawing and, and it make, if you write the word elephant people see an elephant so you don't have to draw the elephant you can just write a word then you can even write words that have multiple meanings like you can write the word fix which is a word I used to write a lot in paintings because fix means to, to hold something down but it's also where way people getting a, a fix of something like, oh, I need my caffeine fix. But it's also to mend something when it's broken. So I like using words that not only look nice, like an X or an O. These are, for me, they're really pleasurable shapes because they're symmetrical or, or some of them aren't. But they're just nice. The, the number two is a lovely shape to draw for me. Other people might... Select so another number to draw. But for me, it's a geometric thing as much as a meaning. And then how do you meet the two? Because often, again, a dialogue in my head about making art, it's, there's almost two points of power. What does it look like? What does it mean? And it's a big frustration for me because I think a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of people look at things and judge them by what it looks like, especially online. Oh, I like that. Double tap. Yeah, but what does it mean? And especially with abstract art, some stuff's just too clever for its own good. Sometimes I'm like, I like that. Now, what does it mean? And I go in and I go to the gallery website and I download the PDF and I read it. And I'm like, I might need to borrow someone's dictionary. (laughs) It's almost like to understand some contemporary art you need to have a degree in philosophy. Or Mm. you need to... There's, I don't know, there's something that I struggle with fully grasping the meaning of things when I really love the way it looks. Like, there's certain things I just like because of the aesthetics, and then there's other things I didn't like because of the aesthetics, and then I read about it, and it blows my mind. And, And a bit like a movie that you're still thinking about two weeks later, there's pieces of art that I didn't like, and then I read about it, and a month later I'm like, oh my god. Like... I remember seeing a show by Christian Markley. Do you know Christian Markley? Yeah, The Clock, right? Yeah, he's famous for that piece. And there's a few others. And there were a few bits of work in that show that I walked in and kind of overlooked and was like, it's not really my thing. What I actually meant was it's not really the sort of aesthetic that I like. And once I read it, I was like, that's the best piece of art I've ever seen. And I think it's an interesting uh, phenomenon with the internet is that thing about it being immediate and disposable, and people put something up on the internet look at this massive canvas i just did and everyone's like oh it's amazing you're amazing but no one's actually reading what it's about or well, maybe they are but i think a lot of things deserve both um funny one of the reasons i wanted to do the podcast for dota paradise um was because i got asked a question in an interview that was how do you how would you describe what you do to someone who can't see that's a good question. It's a really good question, isn't it? And it's almost impossible to answer, but it, it struck me and it's, it really um, haunted me a bit, that question because I suddenly had this like massive, overwhelming sense of empathy of like, well, what's the bloody point of any <laughs> visual art to yeah. people who can't see? Let's make some art for blind people. Or at least let's think about that. Yeah. I, contemplate what it's like for a blind person to enjoy the internet I think if,
1: um, <laughs> I think you'd never have a problem having to describe your work to a blind person because I think when someone meets you, they immediately will know exactly what your work is like. Yeah. I think it's very much like a, a physical manifestation of your crazy personality. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like uh, yeah. that.
2: Yeah. How would you describe what you do to someone who can't see? Come on, that's a good good question. I'd struggle. How do yeah, you know? you because of, like as soon things. as you describe, for example, a colour. Yeah. What's well, a colour to a blind If there's no reference
0: point, then yeah.
2: Or is it angular? I make furry art. Like, fluffy, <laughs> uh, friendly. I think my answer... I could probably find it. This was, like, a few years ago. I asked that question, and I, I described it as something like... Um, putting toys and fruit in a food blender and then pouring it into your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> something like... That. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, I... Uh, struggle with it, and I feel empathy. I want to make work that makes sense for me and for other people. I don't just want to make pretty things. I'm not even sure what a pretty thing looks like anymore, because of the nature of contemporary culture. Most of the things that are popular, I don't know, like Kim Kardashian's bum. I don't like them. So I'm often looking for things that are beautiful, without being obviously beautiful. I get a real buzz when I see someone's written like no parking over their garage door, but they run out of room, so it's like, yeah. no, pa, and then little king. Yeah, like, that yeah. for me yeah. is like some sort of poetry, a visual uh, poetry that I'm looking for that. I like the, the, you know when people are marking where the gas things are to be yeah. dug up in the street, and I'm yeah. like, this is the best street art I've ever seen. <laughs> when I see things that look too much like art, I start to get a little bit like,
0: come on then. I remember when I was down here last time, you were pointing out the curves, the markings on the curves and the little um, engravings on them that have yeah. obviously been done in, in a the, quarry. In the quarry when they've been mined out. Yeah. And that was fascinating. i have never, never noticed that before. By a miner? Yeah. That's the person cup, who works in a yeah, mine, not companies. a young person.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that is it's true. And I, I, I am often like trying to include those things in my work, like those markings down here is great because you've got the cliffs and people scratch things or draw things with chalk because on the beach it's almost like it's almost encouraged to draw things in chalk because it's such an ephemeral material it just goes away but some of them don't they stay for ages and some of them are like rude and some of them are genuine love letters to, to like i love lily or whatever and and i think that interests me so much more than um trying to make a beautiful thing i want to make things that that have a little bit of the real world in them, and that includes some really disgusting marks as well. Um, So
0: yeah, you work outside as well, right, you work on the streets, how do you balance that with your
2: studio work? You know, there's two types of working outside, and it's funny because as I get older, I'm less inclined to get arrested, (laughs) that's not fun, and also... It's hard work painting outside. Uh, I always carry a can of paint with me because I paint on old mattresses or old sofas or any bit of shit on the street because I I don't want to piss anyone off. I've done it before. I've pissed people off. And it was exciting when I was in my early 20s to run away from people (laughs) shouting at you, for graffiti on their wall. But now it's like, no, but where I live and actually across the world, there are a lot of dirty, disused mattresses. there's something perfect about that because it is literally a blank canvas waiting for you which people want to ignore and I like to sort of draw attention to the thing you can't ignore and draw, write something nice on it Um, and I come up with little phrases it's like become a sport for me like drawing on mattresses is like an open goal when I see one in the street I'm like Oh, hello. It's <laughs> like an opportunity again for me to talk to people, not just on the internet, because some I don't put them all on the internet, but it's a way of me talking to a random stranger who will walk down the street and be like, what is that about, about then, honey? Eh? Is that hot? Yeah. And so that's one side of working outside is either illegal stuff or, because sometimes I do paste-ups as well, which I love, and I'm about to do some more paste-ups actually. I haven't done that for ages. because there's a whole physicality to it, again it's like a sport, you make I make my own glue, I go out and usually at night and you find certain spots, sometimes I'll see a spot a month before I do a piece there or a paste up or and I'm like that's my spot, you know? Then there's the other side of outside work which is commercial art I got an email today asking me if he's going to paint the Primavera festival in Barcelona amazing! Because not only do you get to travel, you get paid. Yeah. And it's weird because then there's a sort of commercialism to it where you're like, oh, I'm a, I'm a commercial artist because you're getting paid and that's weird because people kind of associate that with street art or even graffiti. Like I've done commercial work before and people are like, hey, when did you start doing graffiti? I'm like, this is not graffiti. <laughs> yeah. There's like, I'm not even signing it. I'm basically um, a muralist. And then when it's inside, like doing a mural for Facebook for example, that I'm basically an interior designer or a, a muralist. I like the word muralist because it, 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 I think it describes it best. Um, so there's different ways of seeing that working outside and, uh, and as I get older, like I was going to say, because I've had slick discs and bad backs and things like that, I only do it if I'm going to get paid a lot of money or unless it's a really good thing. Like I went last year to Ethiopia with a charity I've worked quite a lot with, for about seven years I've worked with this charity, so I feel like there's a, a genuine relationship with their cause and with the people that work for them, and they said, do you want to come to Ethiopia? Oh, partly because I painted the rig that they used to dig wells, so they were like, we're going, we'd love you to come and paint some walls, didn't get paid for that, cost me money but I went to East Africa and painted walls in villages with kids. That's a whole different side of it. So you've almost got like illegal, graffiti, fun, which is kind of selfish expressionism. It's like me, look at me. Then there's commercial mural making, which is sometimes tainted with the idea of working for brands. I've done a few that I don't even want to tell people about because I did it for money. Because as an artist, the, the dilemma of being an artist is that you, <laughs> I'm trying to buy a house at the moment, and the, the mortgage company were like, oh, why didn't you earn any money for those six months? And I'm like, because that's the nature of being an artist, you you might make in one day two months rent, and then you might go two months not earning any money. So if someone turns around to you and says, do you want to paint this mural for two days and we'll pay your rent for five months? Of course you're going to say yes. But then if you put it online, people will say, oh, mate, you've sold out. You're working for whoever. Mm-hmm. Take your pick, which is a mad dilemma because <laughs> if someone was to think that I'd sold out because I'd work for Facebook, it's a yeah. bit of a, uh, a um, h- hypocrisy if I use Facebook, but I won't work for them. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a brand that's good to work for that's bullshit there's no such thing as good money in my opinion it, even if you've got an iPhone in your pocket you're contributing towards horrible things in the world because of the, the mining of cobalt and coltan and those things So, when when I get offered a job I'm very sort of like wow well, how is this gonna benefit my career how's it gonna pay me um, and more it's there's a power in saying no as well i love saying no to commercial jobs (laughs) because really what i want to do is sit in my studio and make art i don't want to go and paint the interior of an office so that that company look cool because they're like yeah we're cool every wall in our office has a street art piece on it and you're like well, no none of this is street art it's a real mix of stuff actually i don't know if i answered your question i'm not very good at answering questions but I think some of the best things I've ever done have been outside because the context completely changes it becomes a social sculpture I did a a massive mural with an artist called Billy Billy Colours and we painted a refugee camp in Greece where it was the side of a motorway it was an old fabric factory that they were allowing say 500 refugees to live there so it was like a hotel on the side of a motorway But not a hotel, because there's no room service. In fact, all these people don't want to be there. They're very sad. They've literally travelled across the the Mediterranean in a rubber dinghy. And they've got no prospects. So suddenly, we turned up and painted the entire building and made it bright and colourful. And some of the kids and teenagers and adults helped us. And some of them helped us write stuff, because again, like writing in Syrian or Arabic and Greece welcome have a nice day things like that and there's something so rewarding about that that's much more rewarding than painting a mural in a Facebook office it's like a sense of um, satisfaction and pride that's like well um, beyond money and fame and maybe that's how we measure success nowadays is money and fame. How many followers have you got on Facebook or InstaFace or MySpace and stuff? And how much money have you got on your bank? Well, how much do I think you've got because of your Rolex and your car? And those two things are actually bullshit. Because we all know you can buy followers or you can be sponsored by this person and you can lie about how much money you've got by getting a credit card. The real reward for me is doing things that actually uh, beautify an ugly situation i feel like when i worked in ethiopia the charity that were digging wells and building toilets it's not very nice to talk about toilets no one wants to talk about (laughs) sanitation and cholera these aren't nice (laughs) it's not glamorous no (laughs) (laughs) disgusting actually but it's universal Everyone needs to take a shit. Yeah. <laughs> and if you do the research, you realize that like 60% of the world don't have a toilet. Yeah. 60%. And you take it for granted, you go and flush your shit away. And don't get cholera. When most of the world don't. They have to go and dig a hole a mile away and take a shit. And I felt like my art was like the, the, the teddy bear on the front of the truck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the, the truck that was full of toilets and aid relief and medicine and builders building wells it's all quite industrial and a bit scientific and a bit awkward to talk about and then I come along and write wash your hands and have a nice day and suddenly that little corner of that village that up until now is just like the place where people go through shit (laughs) now (laughs) it's like really colourful and pretty and the children love it because they all get a sticker and they all got to come and write their name on the wall and suddenly you create a social sculpture. You're doing something that's, I don't know, it's rewarding for different reasons and then are not about money and fame. None of those people in Ethiopia knew who I was and they don't care who I am. And um, and I didn't get paid, which actually made better. I think sometimes if you get paid, it changes the, uh, the dynamic you have expectations when the other people have expectations mm-hmm. and yeah. if you say no I'm just going to do it for free suddenly everything is uh, different well that was great thank you Thank
1: you. for your bid um, for allowing us in your studio and absolute pleasure to, thank to see you guys was, and for yeah. making us tea tonight Yeah.
2: my pleasure, out. big up Dirty Paradise because it's yeah. not me, it's a whole collective which includes you and is a continuing Project. It really is something that I hope continues to evolve. Um, and big up Delphian Gallery. You guys are great. Thanks for paying me the attention that I crave. <laughs> no problem.